So, church, um, kids, thank you for staying with us today. Um, one, it's, you know, once a month we try to have church all together, and that's a joy. Um, two, um, because of the shower project, it's a little harder to have kids ministry in the other building. And so I'm really grateful you're with us. And we're going to talk about a story, kids, that you guys know, a story that probably you've learned many times, the story of when God made people and how he made people. So we've been, we've just begun studying the book of Genesis. And last week we looked at sort of page one, the first big story, the cosmic creation of all things. And today we turn to page two, the second creation account. This is Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. And I'm going to read through verse 25, this, the whole second creation account. Uh, so let's, let's still ourselves to hear the scriptures. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now, a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion for him who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, well, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, the living creatures of the field. But for Adam, no companion who corresponded to him was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took, part in the he took a part of the man's side and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they become one family. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Lord, we hear these stories and we've, you know, from children's ministry growing up or whatever, many different ways, we've heard these stories so many times and we've, we've put on them so many debates and questions and cultural things and problems that happened between men and women later on and, and how to look back on these stories and sort those out and, and Lord, um, Thank you that these stories have guided us through many things over the years. And today, Lord, I pray that you would let this group of people, kids and grown-ups, stand next to the Israelites who had just been freed from Egypt and to hear it the way they would have heard it, to hear this explanation of where they came from and who they are. Lord, give us ears to hear so that, so that we would hear this well and, and be amazed at what you're doing in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, years ago, I, uh, I heard a pastor of a very large church, similar to Mission Hills, talking about um, all of the classes that they put on. They put on all sorts of classes, uh, you know, throughout each semester, whatever. There was always a nice menu to choose from. And he mentioned that every time they did a class on the topic of finding out God's will for your life, something along those lines, discerning God's will, you know, figuring out who I'm called to be, whatever, those classes always filled up the fastest. They were always, there was like standing room only, always for those classes. And what, what's interesting to me about that is those people in that church are just like you. <laughs> like, and just like me. We're people who go through our lives and most of the time we're wondering is this what I should be doing? Is this where I should be? Like, maybe if I decided to hear, you know, maybe if I decided to, here's the thing I always do, to, to run cross country in high school instead of try to be a basketball player, what would happen? You know, like you ask these questions and you wonder like these different forks in the road that we're just like them. And we're often asking these questions and wondering, is like, how is God gonna guide me through this. Well, even though our world is really different, what we experience is really different than the ancient Israelites, in, in a way, they were actually asking the same question. 
They had been Egyptian slaves for seven generations. It's all they knew. And then God pulls them out, and boom, they're alone in the desert. And, and there's this God who introduces himself to them, Yahweh, who pulled you out of Egypt. And they have to figure out, well, why us? Like, what, what do we do now? We're, we're wandering in the wilderness, following a cloud. What do we do? What is this God doing with our lives now that he has removed us from Egypt. So last week was the big, you know, the grand cosmic creation of everything. God speaks and it is. You know, he creates with simplicity, order, delight, and it's all very good in his eyes. He emphasizes how good it is. He blesses his creatures so they can spread his goodness and multiply his goodness Everywhere, but his crowning achievement of all of that, his final touch is people. People. And he tells us more about people than any of the other things that he makes. In fact, he tells us three really important things about people. One, people are made in God's image and likeness, and that is a universe, that's a huge idea made in his image and likeness. He intends us to be infused with his presence in order to show the world what he's like. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing is we're created with a job. That's what the Work to Earn program reminds people of. We're created with, a, at the beginning, the first thing that we hear, you know, boom, there we are, you, you have a job. We're given this great job to rule over the earth as God's representatives. Power, um, not quite. Third, people are created with genders. They're created male and female. We don't learn that about any other of the creatures. So if the Israelites are asking, who are we, that God would rescue us from Egypt, those three things are the first things they learn, you know? And that leads us into chapter two, all right? So I want to show you something here at the beginning of chapter 2 that could help us understand what we're reading, all right? So chapter 1 starts like this. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? That's how chapter 1 starts. Now take a look at how chapter 2, or the second story, starts. This is the account of the, heaven, the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens— Kids, what's different at the, in that second, the big words there? What's different? They're, they're switched, right? Heaven and earth get switched. It's like the first story is telling us the story from top down. You get to sit next to God and watch him create. The second story is told from the ground level. This is what it looked like from up above. Now we get to see what it felt like down below. And so a lot of people stress over some of the differences in the stories, but what it looked like from God's level is always going to look and feel different than what it feels like when you're standing in the dirt on the ground. This is the story from below. And what we see is we look at the creation really through Adam's eyes. That's, those are the eyes we get to look through. In Genesis chapter 2, 
um, we get an up-close picture of God's intentions that are cooked into his creation for people, especially. So God answers this big, the big questions with four ideas. He creates his people with intimacy. He creates them with responsibility. He creates them with opportunity. And he creates them with inadequacy. That is, not, they're not adequate. Or he's not adequate. Let me tell you what I mean. Intimacy, all right? There's the word intimacy on the next slide. Intimacy, ha! That's how you spell it. Okay. When God makes the man, he like kneels down into the dirt. Ch chapter one is God speaking from up high. Let there be, boom, there is. In chapter two, it's this picture of God getting down into the dirt and like forming the soil. And even the word that's used is the word for pottery, all right? And, and, and pottery can be a very intimate thing, you know, ask Demi Moore, all right? Pottery, you know, it's, it's, it's like God's got the dirt underneath his fingernails as he forms the man. And after he forms the pot, it says he breathes into it. The, the first people start with CPR, you know, like ask the sandlot, like CPR is also intimate. So like there's this, the, the, the God is breathing his very presence into his people. That's how in, he infuses them with his self. The very beginning, the top thing for God's will for your life is intimacy with him. He wants you to be so infused with his presence and his spirit that he's closer to you than your own soul. This is how we become living beings only after he breathes into us. All right, the second thing that we're created with is responsibility responsibility, okay? So we already know from chapter one that God gave humankind a job. And it's described there as fill the earth, subdue it and rule over the creatures, okay? That's, that's the job description that the executive office wrote, all right? That's the one, like now go find someone for this job. But in Genesis chapter two, we get what the job feels like on orientation day. You know when you show up to a new job for the first day and someone's walking you around like, and they are going through the clipboard and it's all overwhelming and amazing? And that, this is what Adam sees when, he, when he's experiencing the job. God takes him and he places him in this orchard, this garden called Eden. And he tells him, care for it and maintain it. Care for it and maintain it. This... This is what the job looks and feels like from, from the ground up. God gives this big thing, so do it, rule over it. Yeah, okay. But that looks like care for it and maintain it. So what, are those, what do those words mean? The first word, this word care for it, all over the Hebrew Bible is translated serve. Serve in it. That, that's, what, that's what he's supposed to do. Now, now, later on in the story, caring for the earth is going to get harder. Like, plants are going to start growing where they're not 
you know, where they're not supposed to, and it's gonna, like, it's gonna be labor and calluses on your hands and sweat to, to care for the earth. But for now, I don't really know what it looks like because it's just so easy. All we really know is that the work is incredibly rewarding for this guy in the garden. It's in good, like, you can eat freely from anything. And I think that that's part of his service. So when I was in high school, as a youth in this congregation, there was a, a leader in the youth group named Rick Caps, And Caps uh, la later on was an elder here. Uh, many of you might know or remember Caps. Great guy, but Caps is famous for being very blunt. He liked to make me squirm um, and uncomfortable. And he is also a keen observer of people. And when I was, I don't know, maybe a junior in high school, uh, Caps noticed that like I was really proud of being kind of a leader in the youth group and, and doing, you know, leading Bible studies and whatever. And, and oftentimes I wasn't giving other people space to do things. And so he kind of pulled me aside and he gave me this little lecture. And he said, I want you to learn a new ministry, Mike. I want you to learn the ministry of what he called receiving. To learn when other people have a gift, when they have a, a, something to share, your greatest honor to them is to receive it. And friends, that's a way that we dignify one another whether it's simple gifts or acts of service or words of encouragement, you know, to receive those things is actually a ministry to the giver. And that's the first work of people is this joyful, free receiving of everything that's in the garden. All right. So that's the service, but we're also to maintain it, to maintain it. Of course, all right. That might mean, um, you know, pruning the trees and stuff. Uh, but this word for maintain is the word later that the Israelites would hear when they hear about keeping the commandments, obeying the commandments, keeping things pure. When you maintain something, you're keeping it pure. In fact, if there's something that's trying to creep into the garden... The man's job is to maintain it and keep the garden pure. That's his initial job, foreshadowing. All right? So, Adam's job is to care for the garden and maintain it, to serve it and keep it. All right? In, in, in the rest, of, if you look through the Bible, there's descriptions of other jobs for the Jewish people. Only one of them has this job, to to care for something and maintain it. And that's their job description. And that's the priests in the temple. They're the only ones who are told to care for and maintain something. And that's their job. The priests are there to receive the goodness of God. In fact, the temple was decorated like the Garden of Eden. They're to receive on behalf of the people and to keep this place pure where God's presence can dwell with the people. So man is created with intimacy and responsibility, but also opportunity. So here's this man with his responsibility among the fruit trees. And he's free to eat from any of them as his heart desires to his heart's desire. What a joyful thing, except that one tree. All right. 
So uh, there's two trees that we learn about, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with that second tree, this is actually opportunity. This, is, this creates an opportunity that he wouldn't have in any other way. All right? There's a lot of debates about why God put it there. And wouldn't you love to know? Wouldn't you love to? What? Like, if, that, if eating from that tree is going to create all of the problems, don't plant the tree, God. <laughs> like, problem solved. But even though God says the fruit isn't for you, I submit to you that the presence of the tree is for the man. The tree being there is a gift to him. And at the very least, it gives him the opportunity to trust this person that's giving him this guidance. Like, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. No other explanation. Do you trust me? I will talk a bit more about the tree in chapter 3, I assure you. But... What an opportunity to trust the Lord. Will you take my word for it? Do we love him and trust him enough to do that? And that's the only way man can have an opportunity to trust, to have something like that, a risk like that. All right, the fourth thing that man is created with is inadequacy. Now, kids, I know that's a big word. That means not complete. Here's what I mean. Through chapter one, we saw this over and over again. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. It's all so good. And so because of that, when chapter two says this, it's not good. That's like, what? Wait a minute. How could this be? Uh, but that's what God says. God looks at the man, he's alone. It's not good for him to be alone. And so he's going to find what the Hebrew is, a helper who corresponds to him. And that in and of itself has created all sorts of problems between men and women. I just want to remind you, if you don't know this already, that throughout the Bible, the person called helper the most is God. <laughs> he's the helper most often, all right? And God's going to create something to correspond to Adam to be his helper. All right? So, I, this way, the way God does this is like, it's a bit dramatic. It's a bit dramatic. It's like, um, it's like a young man uh, who, you know, is wooing his girlfriend and, and leads her on a scavenger hunt. And at the end is a tiny little box, you know? In fact, there may be a real story where that happens. This dramatic thing, full of misdirection, wanting to build up the moment, build up the tension for the big reveal. I mean, that's certainly what God is doing, but it's a, it's a funny preview. I mean, the whole Bible, you guys, is this. God is, God loves the drama, in a way, he loves the good story. And so this little moment with Adam and God saying, well, how about this as a, as a helper? No, 
uh, okay, how, how about this as a help? Uh, mm, no, like it's building up the tension, right? And so finally, at the end of the hunt, God says, close your eyes. And Adam falls into a deep sleep. And when he wakes up, what he sees is the first of a million songs, leads him to the first of a million songs. Like looking on the person that suddenly he can't imagine living without. And he says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's the song that Adam sings. What does that song mean? What is that? That's kind of a funny song, isn't it, William? Bone, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Oh, you can hear the pitter-patter of her heart right now. Like, okay, yeah. One, it kind of means... She's like me. <laughs> okay, that's obvious. But can you think of any other place in the Bible where, where we have something of something? And it's the same word, something of something. Well, let me give you an example. Here's another one. There's a whole book of the Bible called Song of Songs. Or at the end of the Bible, when King Jesus rides in to redeem all of the brokenness that remains in creation, he has a name tattooed on his thigh. And his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, what do these phrases mean? Song of Songs is making a big claim. This is the greatest song in history. And it happens to be a longer version of Adam's song from between two lovers singing to one another. And of course, King of Kings and Lord of Lords is making a claim. This is the King over all kings and the Lord over all lords. So when Adam looks at Eve and says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he's not just saying, oh, you kind of look like me. huh? He's saying, whatever I am is the rough draft for what you are. Like you are the final product. In fact, God uses different words. So the Genesis uses different words for how God made Adam. How he made Adam was remember pottery, pottery language. Here's a reminder. All right, that's how he made Adam. The word for how he made Eve is cathedral language. It's a different word. He constructs this ornate, beautiful thing. And, and, you know, the writer can't contain themselves as they're putting this together. They're saying, and this is the foundation for all of civilization. This is why man leaves his family and is joined together with his wife. You know, part of him was taken out and now he gets to come back together. One flesh together. This is the gift that we're given. This is the foundation for marriage. This is God's. Before we get into any of the debates that we're all familiar with around here about, about sex and gender and marriage and all of these, you know, new ideas about those things, we have to look at the beautiful original intent for it. And we need to start not with combating and like, you know, judging those ideas, but just by saying, Look how good this first, look how good this started. The, like the first song ever sang 
between these two people who corresponded to one another. Oh. In fact, the honor and delight that the man shows in the woman would be just bonkers to the Israelites who are first hearing this. They've never heard women spoken of with such honor. They've never heard a picture like that. Egyptian culture didn't, that just didn't exist in Egyptian culture. God is setting the, the, the tone for his people that, they would, that, that, that women would be honored among the community. So what does all this look like? This, this opportunity, responsibility, intimacy, and inadequacy, finding its adequacy in our world today. How can we recapture that, God's will for our lives, and own those things? Well, we need an example. That's what we need. So where can we turn to see what it looks like? Well, who walks so closely with the Father that he can say, whatever I do, I do because I saw my Father doing it. Whatever I say, I say because my Father said it. When you see me, you see my Father. All right? Uh, who, who serves the Lord with joy, receives his delight constantly? Like, think about Jesus' behavior among the people, receiving gifts from others, receiving the goodness of creation. You know, like, think about that. And even going into the temple and cleansing it, like, maintaining it. He's doing the work that the priests had let go. Who trusts the Father's provision and loves his word with simplicity, even when a shortcut is offered to him. He takes the opportunity to trust in the desert. And, and lastly, friends, who falls into the deep sleep of death. And after he dies, a part of his side is wounded so that when he wakes, he can look on his people and say, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He can delight in the bride. He has done the work and paid the price. And you, church, you, are the recipients of that song. All of this story in Genesis 2 is leading to that goodness. So you want to you taste the tree of life again? You're going to hear that man gets banished from it, but I'm offering you juice straight from those fruits today. I'm offering you the tree of life. You can literally eat from it at the table and receive what Jesus has for you.